I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan. And welcoming back my co-host, David Feldman. Welcome back, David. Good to have you back. Yes, and I will behave now, I promise. I've learned my lesson. You're out of the penalty box. <laughs> and, of course, we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. We, we have the woman of the world on our program, a great humanitarian, pragmatic, networking woman, Hazel Henderson, for our listeners to benefit from and follow up with her enormously motivating website. Thanks for teeing that up, Ralph. You know, in our modern industrial society, we are accustomed to measuring national prosperity in terms of finance, in terms of money. We're told that things are good. Look at how high the stock market is. Look at how high our GDP is. But there seems to be a disconnect between those numbers and how prosperous and satisfied real, living, breathing people feel. And that's because money does not tell the whole story. There are other yardsticks, and that's where our guest Hazel Henderson comes in. She's the founder of the group Ethical Markets, whose mission is to advocate for other ways of measuring prosperity and developing and promoting economic models that emphasize not cutthroat competition and fear of scarcity, but are based on principles of cooperation and sharing in our abundance. Someone once said, quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, unquote. Well, Hazel Henderson has a remarkable imagination, and we are privileged to spend the whole hour with her. That doesn't mean we're not going to check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. As always, Russell will give us his latest report on the corporate crime blotter. But first, let's hear about Golden Rule Societies, what Elon Musk would have to do to make Twitter truly a public square, and how we as a nation are not as polarized as the politicians and news media would like us to believe. David? Hazel Henderson is the founder of Ethical Markets Media and the creator and co-executive producer of the Ethical Markets TV series. She's a world-renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, a worldwide syndicated columnist, consultant on sustainable development, and author of the award-winning book entitled Ethical Markets, Growing the Green Economy. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Hazel Henderson. Thank you very much. Welcome indeed, Hazel, for coming on. And one of the things you're noted for is tackling the tension between commercial values and civic values. And civic values are often not for sale. And you think that a lot of things that go on between human beings on a daily basis represent the golden rule, and they're not for sale. Unfortunately, we have these giant corporations commanding technology, labor, capital, media, and they provide the yardsticks by which we measure our economy. Tell us about the yardsticks that really mean things to people, but don't get calculated in measuring what's called progress. And tell us about your 12 Calvert-Henderson quality of life indicators. Well, let's begin with the golden rule societies, which have dominated human societies for literally thousands and thousands of years. And the golden rule, simply do as you would be done by, was really the rule 
that everybody lived by, an acknowledgement of mutual interdependence and mutual respect. And that basically was the way everything was for centuries. I mean, if you go on Wikipedia, there's 50 pages on the Golden Rule and all those societies and spiritual leaders who adopted it. And then fast forward, we humans made another step at the year 1215 in England. And basically, that was the first time that we acknowledged that the king didn't own our bodies. It was the writ of habeas corpus. And that was another huge step forward, that we own our own bodies. And of course, today we find there are a lot of white-dominated patriarchal societies where they don't count women in that. And then we made more progress fast forward to 1948, where Eleanor Roosevelt and the United Nations put out the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And then in the year 2000, I was honored to be at the Peace Palace at The Hague when the 16 principles of the Earth Charter were announced. And basically, they are the 16 principles of human responsibilities. And as we all know now, you can't have rights without responsibilities. So basically, we humans now The planet is testing us to see if we are going to make sufficient progress to avoid becoming part of the sixth great extinction, which we are causing, but may also end up being eliminated from the Earth, because the planet is always in charge, and eventually the planet wins. And that's why you worked so hard with groups all over the world to develop other yardsticks. I'll give you my examples, but you have many. If there are a lot of auto crashes and deaths, it produces a lot of business and increases the GDP. If autos are safer and there are very few deaths, you don't have that kind of business. If you have a war machine in war, that produces a lot of sales and profits and jobs. If you have a lot of peace... That doesn't register with the GDP the way the war economy does. Tell us about Well, that's where you and I have agreed for all of the years that we have (laughs) been allies. And basically, the markets and money are useful tools that humans have been using for thousands of years. And it was only about 300 years ago with the Industrial Revolution that it was the idea of weaponizing money and markets and making systems of accounting that were predatory on the golden rule societies. And they weaponized money and markets for accumulation and power. And so I have a paper which is very short, which people might want to refer to, called Economists Learning from Futurists. And I'm a futurist, and it's a very well-known profession. And we do scenarios rather than economic models based on the price system, 
because we all know that the price system is a function of human ignorance because we permit the falsity of quote-unquote externalities, allowing anything you don't want to pay attention to to fall off your balance sheet and be passed on to taxpayers or future generations. Yes, absolutely. So basically, I began with metrics to try to correct the market measurements and realize that we've come to the end of the line with that because now we have generations of young economists trained to try to turn everything into market-based metrics. They're trying to turn inequality into market-based metrics. As I point out in my article, they are inventing asset classes now based on basically monetizing ecosystem services, quote-unquote. I mean, you know, they're making up asset classes as we go along, you know, with these crazy cryptos and non-fungible tokens and all the rest of it. And the worst is a group called Intrinsic Exchange Group, IEG. And if you look them up, they are now monetizing natural resources in companies they call NACs, the natural asset companies, where they buy up huge tracts of Mother Earth and offer investors monetary returns. And they were launched on the New York Stock Exchange a couple of years ago. And you see, we have to stop this childish stuff. And the temptation is that many juvenile kind of financial people who believe in all of their magical thinking still attempted to go and ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. You see, and so basically we have to go back now to golden rule forms of accounting. And there's many, many ways of rewarding good human behavior without using money. You know, give some examples. Well, I I grew up in Britain and to time when it was still much more of a golden rule kind of approach. And so you would reward people's good behavior by making them a member of the Queen's Garter or giving them all kinds of civic awards. So there's many, many ways of recognizing and rewarding good behavior that has nothing to do with money. I would hope people would really take a look at an article I have called Fixing the Money Meme. And I have about 5,000 readers on there. And basically, I'm just saying, the money meme is kind of a story that we all believe in or been taught to believe in. It's like fish swimming in the water don't notice the water. And we have to wake up and see the extent to which we are all somehow entrapped by this false story. Well, it's true. And you produced an article in October called Reframing the Politics of Polarization. Listeners, you should really read this. You can get it on hazelhenderson.com. And you quote a number of polls that put the lie to the polarization dominance of our society. It's a divide and rule 
technique for millenniums by the ruling classes Definitely. to divide and rule. Give it's a couple the meaning of, of fascism, really, when mainstream media buy and perpetuate these false stories. But of course, they're owned the by corporations. Yeah, look at the polls that prove your point. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans favor limits on both raising and spending money in congressional campaigns. 84% of Americans agree that politicians have too much economic power, and 82% agree that the rich and big corporations have too much power. Six in 10 of us believe that upper-income Americans don't pay enough in taxes. 78% of Americans, including 80% of Republicans, oppose the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling unleashing even more money in politics. 84% favor paid family leave and two-thirds support a $15 minimum wage. 71% think that most immigrants living in the U.S. illegally should be offered a chance to apply for legal status. And currently, in the news, 71% are against overturning Roe versus Wade. And yes. it just goes on and on. A whole, on and on. A, a whole two-thirds yeah. are for campaign finance reform. And, yeah, this doesn't surface in the media. No, it doesn't surface in the media because they're all owned by the same corporations. But there are all these massive market failures. We have the market failure in the healthcare system because healthcare can never be a market because the buyers, in other words, the patients, have almost no power and no information. And the sellers, i.e. the insurance companies and the providers, have all the power and all the information. And then we have have the same market failure in the food system, nothing to do with nutrition, all to do with trading globally those depleted grains that are in their market model. And then you've got market failures in education and in the safety nets that every society has to have in order to operate. I mean, you can't operate eventually without safety nets. And the evidence now, nature is providing all the evidence. I just read this, we just posted this piece on heat. And in India, there is a huge heat wave. And basically, this is expected to go on. And just an example, a 17-story landfill exploded. I mean, can you believe it? From all of the toxic and combustible items that had been thrown away. And, you know, I mean, you know, nature is still in charge. And sooner or later, finance, which is still completely blind, will either wake up to this. I mean, I call the financial model magical thinking, which it really is. And so they are the problem that we have to deal with now. And there's a piece in The Economist this week on central banking and all the rest of it. And they're saying, well, you know, I mean, climate change, oh, yeah, we can incorporate that in our economic model. And, you know, it's not so bad. So that, this is where we are now. We've got to wake up from this market story, you know, that, that this predatory um, uh, market fascist system. Your point on food, they made a market in fat, sugar, and salt and pushed it on very susceptible children all over the world, especially the United States, leading to 
fast, overweight children with diabetes and high blood pressure. And and they took the nutrition out of natural nutritional foods that have been grown for centuries. There's your your point on on markets. Tell us about the incredible networking that you did, Hazel Henderson, that you were instrumental and is going on now to foster the very pragmatic transformation in the world from global competition to global cooperation, because global competition tends to end up in an arms race. Yes, absolutely. And so basically, I have a piece called The Dawn of a New Age, and I'm just saying that from now on, everything is going to have to change. For example, the number one for me, being a woman who feels that I have the right to own my own body, strangely enough, is the whole idea that basically we have to be able to go beyond the old patriarchal dominance model. Like in Germany, the foreign minister and her two cabinet minister's assistants say, we are going to have feminist foreign policy. Okay, what's wrong with that? We never tried that. We've got to try some things we never tried before. Yes, indeed. Give us your take on the global corporations. Are they compatible with democracy and peace, or are they omnicidal in terms of, for example, global warming, land erosion, the destruction of oxygen in the ocean. These corporations now are becoming like global governments. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, the new ones, Ralph, as you know, are the social media giants, Facebook, you know, Twitter, whatever. And I have an article on my website called Steering Social Media Towards Sanity. And there are five steps that are necessary to control these. And amazingly, there's bipartisan support, even in the Congress, to do this. And number one is that we have to repeal Section 230, which gave them a shelter from liability, the kind of liability that other media have. Number two is to break them up on antitrust basis. That's happening. And then number three is like know your customer. Just you may not have anonymity. And that would cut down, as I understand it, about 50% of the bad behavior if you had to acknowledge who you were. And then fourth is basically to change the business model. And if they purport, like Musk is saying he's going to do with Twitter, if you purport to be the public square, then you must change the business model, no longer take advertising, and only give public service spots and receive no funds from advertising of commercial nature. And basically, that has to be their new business model. And basically, a non-profit model and can be based on subscriptions or whatever. And then the fifth is what I call I habeas corpus. In other words, we not only own our own bodies, but guess what? We own our own minds and everything that comes out of our minds. So we need to establish ownership. 
and get paid for every bit or bite that we contribute to any of these social media platforms. So those five reforms are very widely supported on both sides of the aisle, even in the U.S. Congress. And one of the most important is getting rid of anonymity, which causes yes. so much of the, the foul, violent materials. And listeners, the reason why Hazel keeps referring to her articles is because she wants you to go deeper than what you all hear on this program. And before we continue, Hazel, give our listeners your various websites. The one main website is ethicalmarkets.com, and that is Ethical markets, all one word, plural, dot com. And everything is there, and you can shift to all of the other sites that we have from there, including our TV channel. All of our TV shows are free, and we send them around the world to business schools, hoping to teach business school students about all the big lies that are being told now by large corporations who go to Davos and say, well, guess what? The market worked. You know, we have an impact fund now. Well, nonsense. You know very well it's just marketing. It's more marketing. And I just gave a speech in in Amsterdam to 250 pension fund managers. And I said, why are you buying into this stuff? I mean, even the Morningstar group has disallowed 1,200 of these so-called impact funds, you know, the sustainability funds, and said, look, this is just marketing. And an expose was done in Business Week called the ESG myth. And they said the only thing they could find was a a little fewer of fossil fuel companies in their portfolios. But the only other difference was charging higher fees. And so I told these pension fund managers, look, stop buying into this because they're buying into it too because they enjoy the higher fees. So, you know, I have the fun at this stage in my life of trying as much as possible Ralph, as you've always done, my dear, to telling the truth. Well, Hazel, you went further than that. You did very practical yardsticks. Tell us about the 12 Calbert Henderson quality of life indicators, only three of which were quantifiable in money. One of the indicators is urban air quality. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the Calvert Group, I worked as an advisor with them, basically just, you know, for travel and all of that. I wasn't paid by them in any formal way. But we had an advisory council to develop these kind of new metrics. And so basically, we came up with 12 aspects of quality of life. And amazingly enough, if you looked at it scientifically, literally, there were only three of them that could be conducted in money terms. And an example I can use is like air pollution, urban air pollution. We now have 9 million excess deaths a year on this planet from air pollution. And you wouldn't measure air pollution in money terms. You would measure it scientifically in parts per million of junk in the air. So, you see, we we went to what we call science-based investing. 
And basically, science-based investing is looking at the risks in the real world and doing away with the financial community's magical thinking. Well, you know, Sarah Bloom Raskin was blocked from becoming vice chair of the Federal Reserve recently because she she once made a speech saying the Federal Reserve should crank in climate disruption in some of its calculations. Give us your view on the Federal Reserve here. Yeah, well, the Federal Reserve, the way it's set up, it really perpetuates inequality. And it's really the way the plumbing is set up. And I have there again on the website with a link through, I have referenced the articles by four really brilliant women who have disassembled the operation of the Fed and how it actually contributes to inequality. And a perfect example is, okay, if they try to, you know, buy up dud mortgages, they are real estate mortgages, and that immediately flows through into housing bubbles, which then burst like they did in 2008. You see, they don't have any systemic analysis. And the women economists like Rana Faruhar, who is at the Financial Times, I follow her very closely. Stephanie Kelton, whose wonderful book is called The Deficit Myth. Everybody should read that book. And the one on the Fed as engine of inequality. I mean, all these wonderful studies are out there that really show how fundamentally we have to change the design and change how the plumbing works so that it doesn't feed everything back into Wall Street, which is what happens now. You know, the textbooks say it's supposed to trickle down. We know instead it goes right back into the money center banks. You know, you've talked about daily free photons from our sun. Let's assume you were the sun and you suddenly became organic instead of inorganic and you prepared a message to the earth. What do you think the sun should tell to the earth and humankind and natural resources? Well, um, the sun, our wonderful mother star, has been trying to tell us, of course, for millions of years, that all the free photons that shower our planet every day provide all of the abundance we will ever need if we learn how to capture those photons as well as plants did. Plants created the first technology called photosynthesis. All we have to do is to learn from plants to capture it as well as they do, and we will have abundance for literally millions of years. And that's what the sun is really trying to tell us. We live in an abundant universe, and this is our birthright. You know, we grew out of this universe like flowers, You know, we've gotten this idea that we have to teach our children, you know, that all of this false stuff. But basically, we live in an abundant universe, and let's just get with the program. Instead, we dug deep for fossil fuels and created one of the greatest crises facing the world today. Yes, and then subsidize the use of them. Yes, (laughs) to make matters worse. 
Let me quote from one of your articles, quote, reframing the politics of polarization and survival through cooperation and sharing at all levels requires restoring the age-old traditional values of the golden rule while valuing love economies, you underline, valuing love economies, those fundamental, formerly unpaid, invisible, caring sectors that undergird all our markets and price-based transactions. Currencies and prices are tokens of what we value and measure by which we still keep score of our agreements, goals, and strategies. Explain that. Give some examples. Yeah, uh, see, they can't, you, you can't turn them into physical objects. This is the mistake that's going on now. That basically these tokens of value, which everybody now is trying to monetize and trying to turn into cryptos and all of this, you know, basically a cryptocurrency is a digital noun. It has no meaning until somebody decides to wrap it up in a beautiful set of dreamy ideas that will be all of these wonderful people who will manage this currency and make sure that it's always held to the highest standard. Come on, this is just marketing. It's all marketing. And manipulation. And manipulation. Like IEG, I do hope somebody will go on that website. You'll be horrified. At, you know, creating what? all these new assets out of thin air. Increasing concentration of control, removing them more and more from the real life of people, abstract yes. tyranny, all that. You've really helped build a tremendous network. You have 800 libraries all over the world that have your books and materials. Yeah. You've done documentaries. You've done television programs. Tell us a little bit about what someone called once the Hazel Henderson International Pragmatic Transformative Network. <laughs> well, I just put one foot in front of the other and try every day to move in honoring what I have always called the love economies. You know, and I mean, you know, the most absurd thing with this predatory market model is, okay, are you really saying then that everything must be price-based? So you are telling me that an infant must pay its mother to change its diaper? I mean, you know, there's a level of absurdity of this, which we just have to keep telling the truth about. You know, I mean, most of us grow up in loving families where we do things for each other. And everybody's familiar with this model. And we have to honor it and reward it and and just keep telling the truth about it. Well, anthropologists call this the gift economy. Actually, yes. on a day-to-day basis between billions of people in neighborhoods, communities, villages, farms, you yeah. name it. There is far more transaction completely outside the monetized market system. If they ever monetized it, it would be multi-trillions of dollars. That's what you're really talking about. Exactly right, yeah. Oh, I mean, we don't see the level to which it works. It just works every day, you know, in every way all over the world. Uh, And how is this network of yours? Describe this network. I think this is what's extraordinary about you, Hazel, is is the pragmatic nature of your idealism. 
Describe the networks that you've helped build and are still underway in different dimensions. Well, there's one now which I'm very promoting quite a lot, and that is a network of people who understand that we have to unpack all of these algorithms, and there must be complete disclosure. And this is happening actually in Britain. They have a new law now that say that all algorithms must be fully exposed so that people understand what the recommendation algorithm is. And of course, in most of these, like Facebook, the recommendation algorithm brings you deeper and deeper into the kind of false thinking that you began with. So you start off, you know, saying, well, you know, I believe in this or that. And then they'll introduce you to a whole bunch of other people. And before you know where you are, you're deep down a rabbit hole of anger. And that's the way they make their money. And so we have to expose that. And a lot of good people doing that, like Karen Swisher. She has a, a column now in the New York Times, and she goes after it every day. But we need a whole lot more people to really, you know, expose algorithms. How would you replace the omnicidal, monetized, myopic power of giant corporations astride the globe, escaping national jurisdictions, pitting countries against one another for maximum profit, hollowing out communities? What's the approach there? Well, the only approach really in every one of these areas is telling the truth as loudly and often as you can. And I have no ambition or an expectation that I'm going to make that much difference or even any of the networks are going to make that much difference. The thing is that the planet basically is in charge and they will run up sooner or later against the planet, whether it's the new heat with garbage dumps exploding in India or whatever, the lessons of the planet will win. The planet will always win. What can be called the revenge of an abused natural world, which is what global warming is. Yeah. Right. But I don't think the planet thinks about revenge. The planet just <laughs> does what it does. There's no intentionality there. Uh, the planet just is. And we will have to learn to respect the planet's lessons or else we will join the next extinction. We are being tested now to see whether we are a suitable species to continue. The planet isn't in danger. Another species will take over and have a crack at, you know, the next stage. Who knows? The planet will be fine. Well, with deforestation, depletion of the oceans, global warming... All that will heal All if we, that, if we leave the scene, if we become right. part of the extinction. All of that will heal. may take a while, but other species will take over, whether it's kudzu or whatever. But it'll all heal. It can. And the planet does that. Hazel, so, you know, the young generation tends to get very quickly discouraged. They have a short-term stamina. They have the iPhone in their hands, accessible to all kinds of information, but it becomes a self 
limiting addiction and the way it's used, what would you say to the young generation? I know some of them are very alert, like Greta and others, but the majority, vast majority, seem purposeless. They seem drifting, and they're asking for help and direction. What would you say to them? Well, the first thing is get off those screens for a bit because they really are so poisonous. And I think a lot of young people are beginning to realize that, you know, get out in nature, take a walk in the woods and meet with your friends without devices for change and share real information. And a lot of them are beginning to do that and realizing how unhealthy it is to spend most of your life on small screens. Because, you know, it just shifts you sort of into this left-brain cognition where you really get a distorted view, you know, of what's actually happening on the ground. And that's the best way they can, I think, ground themselves, which is what many of them are doing now. And what kind of groups in your network do you think they should be alerted to and join and revive and invigorate? Well, my gosh, I mean, there are so many that I can't really enumerate them now. But those groups, I mean, the self-help groups with young people, I know that they exist. And just go search and find them and join up with them because they are in many countries you have this kind of reaction. I know it's going on a lot in Britain where I grew up, but also I've worked in Latin America for many, many years. And a lot of the people in Latin America are always still much closer to the golden rule kind of societies and will slip back very quickly into that kind of understanding so it's Hazel, have you written much or connected with the cooperative economics, you know, like consumer cooperatives, which uh, oh, yeah. started I in, mean, your, in your native definitely. country? Tell us yes, about well, that. Yes. I mean, you know, what people don't even know is that right now, today, there are more human beings employed in cooperative enterprises than in all the for-profit corporations combined. And that's UN data that you can go on un.org. And the year 2013 was the year of the cooperative where they have all of this information. And I have, of course, naturally being a Brit, starting off as a Brit, I have been promoting cooperatives for years and also worker-owned companies. I worked a lot with Lewis and Patricia Kelso on the Kelso plans where you end up with the workers owning the company. And if it's done right, of course, it, it can be done badly. But if it's done right, the workers end up owning the company. And, you know, the press almost ignores this vast cooperative economy around the world. It's all oh, these stock-held corporations that get the attention, that advertise for public radio, public broadcasting. I mean, that's why we need all these alternative media. And I'm only one strand of all of these small alternative media companies. And if people go on our website, they can see some of our media partners like a group called the Green Economy Coalition, which is the first, really, the largest global 
network of NGOs, all kinds of people devoted to accelerating the shift to the Green New Deal, the green economy. On my website, the partners page, you can click through to all of these partners. We even found one crypto, which we thought could be a good one, and that's called SolarCoin. And it's run by a guy who used to be a, an asset manager and realized it was all crap. He was with Bridgewater. And instead, he went back and learned biology and wrote a book called The Nature of Value and then started SolarCoin, which is a rewards currency. And you can't earn a SolarCoin unless you have a third party verify that you have generated off your rooftop or your company's rooftop a certain number of kilowatt hours of solar electricity. Now, that could be a good crypto because it's totally backed by physical assets that are much more valuable than gold. In 2004, I think, you wrote Building a Win-Win World, Life Beyond Economic Warfare, and you've made many trips to China, and the tensions between China and the United States have been building up. What's your approach to China? Well, I still have so many good friends in China, and I was invited there by the state council as a futurist, recommended by Alvin and Heidi Toffler, who wrote Future Shock. And so I did my first lecture in China in 1986, and they have made me, you know, professor of all kinds of, you know, institutes, and and basically... The article I wrote that updated all of this is called Can the USA and China Find Paths to Common Prosperity, which is the Chinese model, what they're looking for now. And you see both societies, our society and China, are dealing with exactly the same problem, out-of-control fascist markets and greedy billionaires. Now, what do we do with our greedy billionaires? We put them on the cover of Time magazine, or we try to bribe them in some way to behave better. Now, in China, basically, the party says, well, guess what? Here's the new rules, and that is that you, Jack Ma, can sit down and shut up. You are not going to bring Ant public. We want you to spend more in your local community and give more to your workers. And then the other very rich guy in China, Mr. Huey, who is the head of Evergrande, the big real estate company, you know, that went bust. Well, of course, nothing ever goes bust in China because if they want to save it, they will save it. But basically, they said to Mr. Huey, well, guess what? The new rule is that housing is for people to live in, not for speculation or market purposes. So just deal with it. And you see that both societies could come together, as they have done on climate change, thanks to Al Gore. You know, at the COP meeting, the one that was in Copenhagen. So we're already cooperating in many, many ways with the Chinese. And let's just focus on what we can agree on and what we can cooperate on.
Well, they certainly, both regimes seem to bring the worst out of both of them. And there's a lot going on beneath the radar in China and the U.S. that can foster those cooperative arrangements. Instead, it's, you know, it's one leader berating another leader. And China gets its back up. You know, it's the Middle Kingdom. It gets its back up. It's going to be very harsh and brutal, even on its own people. The point is that, you know, those stories make the media, you know, the horror stories. Everybody wants the stories, you know, about fear and all the bad things. There are bad things going on in China. But on the other hand, the People's Bank of China, and I know those people very well, they developed a model of greening finance, which could have been written by me. And Mr. Ma Jun is promoting that a lot now in the USA. And so, you know, yes, let's agree with them about how to green the financial system. Listeners want to learn more about this. Hazel has been a producer of Transforming Finance, a TV series, Transforming Finance, and publishers of the Green Transition Scoreboard. David? Thank you, Hazel. One of the things we've learned from Ralph is that corporations can't self-regulate, and you, you've pretty much said that. Right. <laughs> they're, they're like children. They, they will do yeah. whatever they can get away with. How do we infantilize them? What language could we use to infantilize corporations so they stop infantilizing us? Gosh. Well, you know, certainly I'm using this term magical thinking, you know, for the the way they operate. But I haven't yet really thought of a good term that really could put them uh, properly in their place. But it's something to do with a sort of rather infantile temptation model. Yeah, I think what David is illustrating is one of our young scientists many years ago went to a processed food convention, and they were given awards to the people who developed the most tasty chemicalized whipped cream and things like that. And he he jumped onto the stage and took over the podium. It was Michael Jacobson who started the Center for Science oh, and the yes, Public I Interest. I remember him so well. <laughs> and just by way of illustrating, in a world desperate for nutrition and desperate for food safety, they were giving out awards for this kind of tripe. And I think this kind of lucrative trivia ought to be elaborated more apropos David's question to show that these people are trivializing the planet into profitable death for themselves. That's why I use the word omnicidal. Yes. And so also that they have weaponized the word innovation. Innovation for what? Innovation for what purpose? You know, is it 65 new brands of hair cream? Or is it innovation to create better solar energy companies? You know, shift to heat pumps, you know, solid things like that. Innovation for Trident submarines, each one of which can blow up 200 cities in a few hours or innovation right. to get clean the drinking water in locales yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of us have to really politicize and focus on these words, these classifications, and how careful we have to be about classifications and which ones help 
us understand what's going on and which ones confuse what's going on. Hannah, how about the young generation asking a question or comment? Thank you, Ms. Henderson. First, I want to humbly suggest corporate hissy fit or corporate temper tantrum. Oh, yes, I like that. So That's just, great. Temper tantrums. See, that was the one they used when the, when the Fed removed the put, you know, and said, no, we're not going to always bail out Wall Street. And Wall Street had what they called temper tantrums. Hannah makes a very good point. I think personalizing corporate behavior is good. Like when hospitals, to make more profit, get mothers who give birth and they get them out of the hospital very, very fast, they can be accused of attention deficit disorder. Oh, <laughs> yes. And then really? General Motors refusing to curb its pollution yes. can be accused of in other words, you use psychological language to personalize them, and then people will get more interested in them. Right now, yeah. most people don't know who the CEOs are that are running the country. In the old days, they knew it was Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller and Jay Gould and others. Right. They don't yeah. know their rulers now. Now, that's exactly right. Now, I love this. This is terrific, Hannah. I got a PG&E is grounded. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I do have a legitimate question, a legitimate question, if I may. So California's attorney general is trying to put ExxonMobil in the corner. Oh, I like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're good at this. Thank you. I sit, I just absorb all of everyone else's brilliance, and then I <laughs> say one more Well, we time. all do. We all learn from, from each other. It's wonderful. That's the golden rule. I was going to say, GM refusing to curb its pollution over the decades needs to be taught something about toilet training. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Great. I love it. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so I have a question actually about ExxonMobil's potty mouth. So the LA Times reported recently that California's attorney general is subpoenaing ExxonMobil, looking for information related to their efforts to minimize the public's understanding of the harmful consequences of plastic and yeah. perpetuating the recycling myth. And I'm a spokesperson for the corporation said, quote, we reject the allegations made by the attorney general's office in its press release. We are focused on solutions and meritless allegations like these distract from the important collaborative work that is underway to enhance waste management and improve circularity. So I'm just curious what your reaction is to Oh that. my God, well you know this term circularity, which was a, there, there's another term we have to unpack because the Ellen MacArthur Foundation really promoted that. You know, she was the woman who sailed around the earth solo and she's based in London. And she has a thing and, you know, newsletter called The Circular Economy. And that now is also um, being basically politicized in the worst possible way, you know, where everybody is sort of, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're part of the circular economy, you know, with some completely trivial kind of thing. Now, there's some good operations in the circular economy. One I'm an advisor to, which is a company called ECOR Global, E-C-O-R Global.com. And what they do is they take the wastes from, say, right now from Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, and right there on the spot, 
turn them around in a very small energy efficient unit on the premises to the next day's you know needs that's the real circularity and and they can also turn a lot of them into chairs and tables and lampshades and kind of upgrade them so there's one to look at and you can look at some of the beautiful things that are actually possible in a real circular economy well, as we conclude, Hazel, what would you like to say more? We've only tapped a fraction of <laughs> well, your all, all observations. I can say, well, all I can say is that I'm very honored to be involved with all of you. And basically, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to sound off a bit, you know, on all the things I care about. Let's all keep telling the truth together. And let's have you tell our listeners the website again. Okay, it's Ethical Markets. That's all one word, ethicalmarkets, plural, dot com. And from there, you can reach all the other sites. You can click into all the partners. Everything is free. And please use it. Send us your news that you want us to publish. And we'll just, you know, widen the golden rule and the cooperation. And we should mention that one of your greatest books, The Politics of the Solar Age, has influenced a lot of young people over the years all over the world. Thank you very yeah, much, Yeah, it's Hazel. now free. It's free. And also my earlier book, Creating Alternative Futures, The End of Economics. Both those books are on free downloads from our website. Exemplifying your principle that the most important things in life are free <laughs> espoused it's by true. the golden rule, right? <laughs> That's right. It's true. So it's such an honor, Ralph. And you know how much I have admired you and loved working with you all these years. Well, it's more than reciprocal. Thank you very much, <laughs> Hazel. A pleasure. Um, We've been speaking with the indefatigable Hazel Henderson. We will link to ethical markets at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Now let's hear from our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, May 6, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. A former employee at Abbott Nutrition's Sturgis, Michigan infant formula plant flagged concerns about food safety violations directly with senior FDA officials in October, months before two infants died and another was hospitalized from bacterial infections after ingesting formula made at the plant. That's according to a report from Politico in a 34-page document sent to officials October 19 and 20. The whistleblower outlined allegations of lax cleaning practices, purposefully falsified records, and efforts by plant officials to keep the FDA from learning about serious issues related to the plant's own system for checking for bacteria in formula, among other things. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Hannah Feldman, and Ralph. That's our show. I want to thank our guests again, the remarkable Hazel Henderson, for those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now. But for you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. 
And the American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. And be sure to check out their online gift shop. You'll find books, posters, and flaming pinto magnets and mugs for all the tort fans in your life. That's at store.tortmuseum.org. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, the pilot issue is only $5 to cover shipping. Go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wentz. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. I'm only trying to school you. Listen to me, people. Do you understand we got to stand up? Oh, you've been sitting way too long. Oh, You know what's right and you know what's wrong. Rise up. Yeah.